Hey y'all, my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor at Emmanuel in Hookson. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast. Our goal is to be a blessing to everyone who listens as you continue on your journey of faith. It's also our hope that you'll be encouraged to find a church to belong to so you can plug into that congregation and bless others with the gifts and experiences that God has entrusted you with. If you're being encouraged or challenged by this teaching, would you consider giving us a five-star review? That review and rating moves us up the list so others might find us more easily so they too can benefit from this podcast. Well, I hope this podcast is a blessing to you and encourages you to get out there and be the blessing. God bless. Presence of God. Uh, If you were with us last week, I hope you were. Uh, We talked about how personal God can be in your life, and we drew that illustration from Mary Magdalene. And some of us, we feel like uh, we can't have a close, dynamic, personal walk or relationship with God because, uh, because of our sin, because of our sinfulness, because we fall and we fail. And, and because of that, that, that makes us feel as though God is keeping us at arm's length, that we can't really enjoy that sweet fellowship, that, con- that conversational walk with God, with Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, here's the interesting thing about that, is that you can't experience true victory from failings and sin in your life unless you have that close, personal walk with God. And that's almost like that paradox in your mind. Because you feel that unless you're totally cleaned up, You can't have it. But the reality is, unless you have it, you can't be totally cleaned up. And so I want to take us to a passage of Scripture this morning. Just one verse to get started. Getting to the heart is the name of the sermon. In Psalm 16, verse 11. Psalm 16, verse 11. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'm going to press pause on that. I just want you to to, to just settle in and let that verse speak to your heart. Um, in in, In our founding documents, the pursuit of happiness was fundamental to what we believed was to be the country that we wanted to found so many years ago. And sometimes we as believers think that the pursuit of happiness necessarily involves vice or evil. But the reality is, the pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of God Himself. Because He is joy. He is joy. Not your success, right? Not your financial wealth, not even your relationships. Nothing can compare to the joy that is found in the presence of God. Now, many of us might think that we have to wait until we get to heaven before we can experience that kind of joy. And I would argue with you that we can experience that kind of joy right here, right now, and it can be a consistent part of our life, this presence of God. And it takes a conscious effort for us to enter into that presence or to understand that that presence has entered into us. And so we're going to look at a couple of passages of Scripture because where does this presence start? I'm going to take you to John chapter 14. This is my mom's favorite passage of Scripture, and one of mine, John chapter 14, says this. Now, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, 
Believe also in me. Jesus is equal with God. He is God the Son. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know. And the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, how do we, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And the Lord Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth, and the life, no man comes unto the Father except through me. If you had known me, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Now I want to drop down to chapter 15, verse number 1. And we know that, uh, well, I, I should... Clarify, if you're not aware of this, this is a teaching that Jesus was unpacking to his disciples just prior to his death on the cross and his resurrection. So these are the, sort of the final words of Christ are found in these last few chapters of John. So one, he tells them, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through him. No one enters into heaven into the city of God, but through the person of Jesus Christ. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. It's not your good works. It's not your good deeds. It's not your church membership. It's not your generosity. It's not turning over a new leaf because the other side of the leaf is just as bad as the side that you turned it over from. You all need a new leaf. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He is the life. You need a new life. Now in John chapter 15, he's going to get into something a little more spiritual. I am the true vine. And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. Here's that presence. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither... Can you, unless you abide in me? I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch, and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now, here's the interesting thing. Those of you that are praying and saying, God's not answering my prayer. God always says no. Um, if you are abiding in Christ, your desires will line up perfectly with his desires. That's an interesting uh, thing that you need to grasp and understand, that he will answer our prayer according to his will. And the and the, probably the first prayer that you should pray is this, Lord, help me be subject to your will. Just like Jesus in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Help me to be in perfect alignment with you. And then you'll see your prayers are answered routinely because your desires are his desires. By this, the Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my Disciples, as the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy, here it is again, may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the presence of God. So in Psalms, so in Psalms, the, the psalmist says that in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy, right? And then Jesus, he's extrapolating on that teaching. He's expounding on it. And he's explaining that when you abide in him, you are in his presence and there is fullness of joy. And that is his desire for us is that his joy may remain in us and that our joy may be full. Now, those of you that are believers in Christ, those of you that have turned from your sin, from your own way to his way, that's called repentance. Maybe your way was religious duty and I'm going to fix myself and I'm going to be good enough and work hard enough. Or maybe your way is I'm going to sin as much as I want because there's nothing left. 
Maybe that was your way, and one day you came face to face with the reality that you were undone before a holy God. And that one day you were going to face Him, and you, you recognized that you were, you were a mess, and you needed help, and you turned, you, you turned from your way to His way, and His way is Jesus. And you cried out to Jesus to be your Savior. That was the beginning, that was the beginning of the personal presence of God in your life. Some of you have yet to do that. I want to take us uh, down to chapter 16 now, verse number 5. Down to chapter 16, verse number 5. But now I go away to him who sent me. So here Jesus is. He's just said, hey, listen, man, abide in me. I'll abide in you. You're a, you're the, I'm the vine. You're the branches, right? My word in you and your fullness of joy. And then he says, now I'm leaving. I'm leaving. So now what? I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask where you're going, but because I've said these things to you, you sorrow. Sorrow has filled your heart. Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, and the helper is the Holy Spirit of God who can be everywhere at once, will not come to you. But if I depart... I will send him to you. So this is the importance, and this is why Christianity is so powerful and so immense. If Jesus had stayed and lived his eternal life on earth as a human being, he could only be present with a few at a time. He, could, he would be in Israel right now. He would have his 12 disciples or his 150 disciples, and, and that would limit his ability to be present with all who would come to faith in him later on. In fact, when the disciples were scattered from Jerusalem, and that's how Christianity spread around the world, there was this incredible persecution of the Christians in Jerusalem, and so they fled for their lives, and as they fled, they took the gospel with them. Well, if Jesus was still just here in the flesh, he would have had to choose which group of people he wanted to go with. And this is why he said, it's imperative that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit, who can be with every single one of you individually, he will not come. But if I go, he's going to come. So, and when he has come, this Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me. That's, of course, the greatest sin because that's the sin that keeps you from the gift of forgiveness, salvation from the penalty of your sin. He goes on, of righteousness because, the, because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The presence of God, the presence of God is not necessarily what you think. So when I grew up, I grew up thinking that God was always angry and he was waiting to drop the hammer on me. That's just how I grew up. I grew up with a guilty conscience. Uh, I, even into my teen years and later on in my young adulthood, I just had a guilty conscience. I remember I was working for a guy uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, and I was a solid surface fabricator, and I was one of their lead installers, and a, a uh, we call it a chop saw, uh, went missing. And I was one of the guys that had a key to the shop, and um, I didn't take it, but I felt bad, and I felt guilty over it. And my boss, um, he looked at me one day, and he said, Eric, I know you didn't take it. I would never suspect you of taking it. Why are you guilty? Why do you feel guilty? I said, I don't know. I had an overactive conscience. I, I had been trained in a sense to believe that God was just waiting for me to mess up. And, and I lived in this constant fear of missing the mark. And so when I think about the presence of God, if my mind has not been keyed in and washed in the scriptures, then the presence of God does not bring me joy and comfort. It brings me fear and trepidation. I'm like, yeah, I'm not so sure I want him to see me all the time, every day, because I'm going to blow it. And I really don't know that I want him to see that. Well, this is not a guilt-tripping sermon. The presence of God is not there to guilt-trip you, shame you, 
beat you down. It's actually there to liberate you. And the presence of God is freedom for the believer. Freedom from that failure. Freedom from that sin. For the one who doesn't yet believe, the presence of God, yes, it will be convicting. As a matter of fact, that's what we just read. That the Holy Spirit is here to convict you of sin because you do not yet believe. And that conviction is a gift to you. It's a gift to you. Because right now, if you have not trusted in Christ, the Scripture teaches us that you are at enmity with God. You are out of alignment with God. And God has actually become your enemy, but He wants to become your friend. He wants to become your father. He wants to become your savior. But in order to do that, you must acknowledge your sin. You must acknowledge that you fall short because there's a, there's a schism, there's a division between you and God and He has prepared the bridge. But you must acknowledge your need. It's very similar to any other relationship that you might be in. Marriage relationships, for example. Or even a parent-child relationship, or a best friend, any relationship. If there is an offense done, right? For instance, if I have offended Angel, and I am not agreeing to and admitting my offense toward him, then our relationship is going to be divided. There's going to be a division between us. And I can go around and say, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm fine. I'm fine. But in my heart of hearts, and this is where the Holy Spirit, that helper comes in. He convicts you of sin. In my heart of hearts, something is telling me that I did something wrong. Right? That's the conviction of sin. So in my heart of hearts, I know that I've done something wrong with Angel. And if I don't admit to it and agree with him that I have hurt him in this certain way, our relationship will be broken. So it is with every single human being on the face of the earth. We were born with a broken relationship with God. And if you are honest with yourself, you know pretty much just as soon as you were able to, you acted in an immoral way. You didn't even need to be taught this. I won't use my own children as an example, but let's hypothetically say that there was this three-year-old who had a disabled sister. Now you know that I'm going to use my own kids. I'm sorry, Danny girl. Um, she, was, she was standing in uh, our apartment, and she was standing in the living room area, and I was sitting on the couch watching TV. Trisha was in the kitchen preparing dinner or lunch or something. When my three-year-old, who had never taught to lie, yelled, she let out a yelp, Ow! Sissy hit me. And I'm like, Kirsten Lee Davis, why did you hit your sister? And Kirsten's like, duh, duh, duh. <laughs> so hilarious. Now, I'm, I'm about to scold Kirsten when from the kitchen I hear this melodious voice saying, Kirsten didn't touch her. I've watched the whole thing. Thing. Chloe made, I mean, the hypothetical child made that up. <laughs> Folks, as soon as, we're, as soon as we're able, because we are born broken, we make bad choices, we make immoral decisions, and our relationship with God is broken, much like if I had offended Angel and I had sinned against Angel and not admitted it and not went to him for reconciliation, that relationship will be broken. Husband and a wife, if the wife has done something to hurt the husband but refuses to admit it, that relationship is going to suffer. Now this is why Jesus came, because he came to pay the debt, the penalty for our sin. And that is why he suffered on the cross. That's why he rose from the grave. He took that punishment. He fulfilled God's righteous requirement. That is where the personal presence of God begins. Look at Acts chapter 4. Let it be known to y'all. This is obviously written in the south. Y'all. Let it be known to y'all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. There, this is the stone 
which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. He's talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's talking about the crucifixion. We just went through Good Friday and through Easter, and this is what he's alluding to, and he's talking to the very people, the crowd that cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna to God in the highest. He's talking to that crowd that threw palm branches on one day and shouted, crucify him on the next day, right? He's talking to these people who cried out for the crucifixion of Jesus, and he is calling on the Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin. And this is what he says now. There is no, there is salvation, in, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. There's no other way. This supports what Jesus said himself in the in the passage that we just read i am the way i am the truth i am the life no one comes to the father but through me now peter is just expounding on that and he's saying there's no other name listen there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved and we says saved he's talking about being saved from the penalty of our sin damnation and judgment for eternity He's talking about being saved from the power of sin in our lives when sin has domination over us. He's saying you'll be saved from the power of sin in your life. He's talking about uh, having a restored relationship with God, not only as creator, but as father. And he's saying there is only one name given to men under heaven, and that name is Jesus. And this is why Paul, now that's Peter. We talked about Jesus, Peter. Now Paul comes in and he says, for if you shall call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. So this is where the presence of God begins. You must know him before you can walk with him. Okay? So if you're here listening today, online, even in the building, and you have not yet begun that relationship with God, all I can do is ask you, would you please look into your heart and ask that question, have I failed, fallen, have I sinned, have I made immoral choices and decisions? And if I had that means that I need to be cleansed, forgiven, and freed. And God himself came in the form of the Son and died on the cross for my sin and rose from the grave so that I could have that offense washed away and I could become a child of God. A child of God. It's an amazing thing. It's a supernatural thing that happens when you turn your heart to God and cry out to him to be your savior. It's a supernatural thing where he creates in you a living spirit that can now have an intimate communication with the Holy Spirit, that comforter, that helper that Jesus has sent to us. The presence of God, to me, is one of the most valuable aspects of what is referred to as our salvation. That that moment where we asked Jesus to be our Savior and He came in and forgave us of our sins and, and He guaranteed for us eternal life in heaven with God the Father. That is salvation. And one of the most beautiful aspects of that salvation is that we can begin this personal relationship, this personal presence of God in our lives. You know, I was away, I went away a little while ago I went to a counseling retreat, a spiritual counseling retreat. And while I was away, one of the things that I was challenged to do was I was challenged to ask God to open my spiritual eyes so that I might see him by faith. Very similar to the way Elijah um, asked God to open the eyes of his servant. There's a passage in the Old Testament where this prophet is surrounded by armies that, that basically were coming after him. And it was just him and his helper. And his helper, his servant, was freaking out. And here the prophet was chill, relaxed, confident, perhaps even joyful. And the servant's like, how can you be so joyful? How can you, have so, how can you be so calm? We're surrounded. They're going to kill us. They're going to take us captive. They're going to bring us to the king of Syria. We've got to do something. We've got to run. We've got to hide. And he's like, hey, relax. Lord, would you open my servant's eyes 
And then God opened his servant's eyes that day. And when his eyes were opened, he saw a greater host of heavenly angels was with the prophet and himself that outnumbered the host of the human armies that had surrounded them. He began to recognize that he was not alone, and though he could not see with his physical eyes spiritually, he was surrounded by the presence of God's holy angels. And so this was the challenge that I had while I was away, was that I might open my spiritual eyes and see him by faith. It was targeted at my painful past and, and memories where his present was, presence wasn't immediately discernible. Let's be honest, when something bad happens, a lot of times we ask this question, where was God? And actually that was the question they wanted me to ask. They didn't want me to be afraid to ask that. God called me to go through suffering, or even when I failed, they wanted me to ask that question, where were you, God? And the exercise was to begin to see that the presence of God was with me even in the hard times. That he had not abandoned me as I felt he had. But that by faith I could see he walked with me. As I began to lean into this practice, going back to those moments of crisis, shame, or trauma, I began to realize with greater certainty not only the presence of God in my painful past, but the presence of God in my present the presence of God in my present. And that is what I want all of you to begin to live out. I mean, I, Lord, this is my prayer for them. Help them to see you. Help them to understand that you are with them. Lord, help me to bring this message to them in a way that will inspire and encourage them to go deeper. What, what benefits... What benefits did I experience when I became more and more aware of the presence of God, of His present presence? I relearned this, that circumstances, and my wife and I are right now in the middle of a, if not the deepest, a very difficult trial. Some that know us well know what we're going through. Some don't, but we're going through an incredibly difficult trial. Circumstance, I relearned that circumstance does not determine your joy. That your joy is not rooted in your circumstance. It's rooted in the presence of the Lord and His holy angels. It's not cliche. It's not trite. It's not religion. It's not make-believe. It's reality and one to which all circumstances, good and bad, failures, successes, must bow in pale contrast to. The practice of the presence of the Holy Spirit will absolutely make a concrete difference in your life and in the lives of those around you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Make no mistake of this. When I began to live with a greater awareness of the presence of God, now God, if you're a believer, here's the deal. He is with you. He's always with you. The goal is do you know it? Are you experiencing it? Do you want to? When I began to live in the presence of God actively, my own wife and I, I'll say, listen, I think we've had a really good marriage. We'll be married for 30 years in August, and we've had highs and lows, ups and downs, sideways and backwards. But generally speaking, I feel that we've had a really enjoyable and good marriage. And yet when I began to practice the presence of God and walking in the Holy Spirit, she said there was a discernible difference in our home. A discernible difference in our home. The freeness, the lightness was in sharp contrast to what even before some might have said was pretty good. So I want to challenge you. What, if you're, if you're following along and you're taking notes, uh, by the way, it's emmanuelbaptistchurch.com. I'm sorry, emmanuelbaptistchurch.churchonline.org has a place where you can follow along with scriptures and take notes, sign up, sign in. Or if you have your YouVersion Bible app, look that up. It's Android. It's um, iPhone. Look it up in the App Store. Just go Bible app. It's made by YouVersion, okay? Um, and sign in, sign up for an account, go over to the menu and, and click events, and you will see a place where you can also take notes there. So here is, is a place where you might want to fill in. 
what are some of the benefits that come from practicing the presence of God? Well, one, a pardoned soul. And so to begin to practice the presence of God, you have to come to know Him through Jesus, right? You've got to come to know Him. So once you come to know Him and you come into His presence and you agree with Him that I have failed and I'm a sinner, but you have not and you are my Savior and you call on Him to be your Savior and He forgives you of your sin, man, you have a pardoned soul and that can never change. You have been declared not guilty in the high court of God. Not guilty. Positionally clean. Now, experientially, right, we get our feet dirty as we walk in this mortal realm. And that's why Jesus was talking about washing feet. We get a profound love. Now, listen, I want all alliteration on you. So we get a pardoned soul. We get a profound love, a love that is deeper and wider than anything else you can experience apart from God. And if you are in a marriage relationship with another believer, you have, you have the capability, whether or not you take advantage of it or, or not, you have the capability of loving your spouse in a deeper and more meaningful way than those who have not yet come to Christ. We get a profound love when we walk in the presence and practice the personal presence of God. We get a purposeful life. We get a purposeful life. Now, some of us you may work at a job where you're saying, ah, oh, my job just feels empty. I don't feel like I'm really fulfilling a deep and abiding purpose. I challenge you, it doesn't matter what your job is. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have a purposeful life. You have a life that is full of purpose. And that purpose is to be a brilliant, shining light of joy to a dark and uncertain world. We get, we get power, a power over sin. That doesn't mean that we don't fall and we don't fail, but it does mean this, that there is a power within us that can enable us to overcome the most stubborn habit in our lives. We get a power over sin. Uh, and I read the, the passage in John, John 14, 15, and 16, as well as Acts chapter 4, to, to show you that if you go back and you read this, you will see these things. We get a power of sin. We get a patient heart. We get a peaceful, a peaceful mind. We get a persistent joy, a persistent joy that is based on his presence. We get a persistent joy. Now listen, when I'm, when I'm not walking and practicing the personal presence of God, I have a very real problem of slipping back into happiness based on circumstance. When I, when, I, when, I, when I close my spiritual eyes and I'm not seeing the presence of God, my happiness is based on my circumstance. But boy, when my eyes are open and, and Jesus is walking with me, the Holy Spirit is with me and I am aware of His presence, circumstance cannot contain the joy. And it doesn't mean that I don't have sorrow. That's the interesting paradox of being a believer. Joy supersedes human emotion. And you can have sorrow within the joy of the Lord. So I have a persistent joy. And then lastly, a persuasive story. Last year when I talked about, I hope you'll go back into our podcast, look up our podcast, the Man Baptist Church on Spotify, iHeart, and, um, and iTunes. Go back to expect Jesus. For you will see the importance of the personal presence of God, the importance of that personal walk with God, the importance of that persistent joy is that you will have a persuasive story and part of your purpose on this mortal earth, this mortal coil, is to bring other people to Jesus. That's part of your purpose. Why did Angel come up this morning and say, share the stream? I don't know if you heard him say that because the audio was messed up, but he started out with saying, hey, welcome everybody. Share the stream. Maybe you were reading lips. We say share the stream because that's part of our purpose. Our purpose is to invite people into a saving relationship with Jesus so they can know forgiveness of their sins, so they can have a purposeful life, so they can have a persistent joy, so they can have a relationship with God that previously they were unable to have Folks, that is the importance of a persuasive story. But if we're not walking in the personal presence of God, we begin to lack that joy of our salvation. 
We begin to lack power over sin. We begin, to, we begin to lack a profound love for one another. We begin to love as others love, only when people love us back. Folks, this is so important to our, to our persuasive story that we have this personal presence of God in our lives. And if that doesn't inspire you, I'm not sure what will, but I hope those, those, uh, that, that, that series of P words inspires you. That you could have a pardoned soul, a profound love, a purposeful life, a power over sin, a patient heart, peaceful mind, persistent joy, and a persuasive story. And I hope you'll write those things down because when it gets tough, you're going to want some motivation to push through. Because here's the deal. The enemy does not want you to practice the personal presence of God. Our enemy does not want you to have a dynamic relationship with the Holy Spirit. Our enemy does not want you to have a persistent joy or a, or, or, a, or a persuasive story. The enemy does not want you to have a purposeful life. And so he works on our hearts. So as we, as we look to wrap up this first half of this message, I want to get to the heart. Those of you that know Jesus, if you haven't come to him yet, the most important thing you need to know is cry out to Jesus for the salvation of your eternal soul. If you have done that, it doesn't mean that everything is perfect, does it? It doesn't mean that, oh, I asked Jesus to be my Savior, and now I'm super Christian. No. Um, in fact, sometimes because of how we were raised and because of the sorrows of this world and the hardships of this life, sometimes our heart grows hard. Sometimes circumstances come in and, and uh, it's like an eclipse. Uh, this, this shadow moves over the sun, right? And, and we begin to lose sight of the glory of God in our lives. And we have this hardened Heart. So I want us to take an examination of our hearts this morning. Before we can begin to live moment by moment in the presence of God, we need to observe our hearts to see where we may be in regards to hearing Him, in regards to obeying Him. Because if our hearts are hard, listen man, we are, if our hearts are hard, we will have work to do as we enter into this season. So, that begs the question, how, how can I tell if, if my heart is hard? How can I tell if my heart is hard? This is where I hope that you will download the Bible app or you will go to emmanuelbaptistchurch.churchonline.org. There's so many scriptures here that I want to go through, and I'm going to summarize some of them for the sake of time, but we're going to look at James chapter number three, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. James chapter 3, verse 13. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where evil and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now look at James chapter 4, verse number 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not even come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Now he's not talking about his desires. Remember, if we are in line and our heart is soft, his desires become our desires. But when our heart is hard, this is what happens. When you lose sight of what true desire and true pleasure is, that war in your members, you lust and do not have, you murder and covet and do not, cannot obtain, you fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, you ask wrongly that you may spend it on your pleasures, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's talking to believers here who have lost their way. They have allowed the shadow of this life to eclipse the Son of God in their life. Galatians chapter 5, now the works of the flesh are evident. 
adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresy, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's often a chapter that's read uh, during weddings. It's a love chapter, but we can see what love is. But as we read through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we find some things that love is not. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Right? So then we go and we drop down to Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Matthew chapter 13, verse 15. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears hard of hearing. Their eyes have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Matthew chapter 15 now, 15 verse 16. So Jesus said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. They defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulterers, Adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemes. These are all things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Now, I know we're in the middle of the novel coronavirus, so you take that however you want it. Wash your hands. Um, but washing your physical hands will not cleanse your heart of sin. First Timothy chapter 1. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned it. Now, believers, we can do this. We can lose sight. Our, listen, we can have a shadow of this world eclipse the sun, right? Have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law. They don't understand what they're saying or the things which they affirm. And so if you're following along in your notes, what, uh, well, I'm going to actually take it, take it back to uh, the blue slide before that, brother. Um, how can we discern if our hearts are hard? So from, perfect, from that passage of Scripture, from that passage of Scripture, I'm going to give you several things to think about this week. Several things to think about this week. Do you want to practice the presence of God in your life? Do you want to have the personal presence of God in your life in a transformative way, in a way that will rock your world and the people around you? Do you want to have joy that is unspeakable and full of glory? Do you want to have the kind of story that others will look at you and say, what is with you? I don't get you. How can you have such hope in such hard times? Do you want to have that kind of life, that kind of power, that kind of passion? Do you want to have that kind of profound love, that kind of persuasive story, that kind of persistent joy? If you do, the first step now is we need to examine our own hearts. And so I took you through that passage of scripture. I walked you through those scriptures. I know rather quickly so that you could look at those scriptures and examine your heart, take this diagnostic, ask these questions. Number one, does worship move you? Does worship move you? Uh, we looked at the psalm. He said, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Does worship move you? If worship doesn't move you, that's one indicator that you may, be ha may have a hardness in your heart. If you can sit and listen to worship and there's no impact on you, you may have hardness of heart. Now I feel like Jeff Foxworthy. You might be a redneck. If your speech betrays you with cutting sarcasm, I'm talking about, you know, lighthearted sarcasm and joking around with people you love, but I mean, if your speech is caustic, harmful to others, consistently negative, you may have a hardness of heart. If your conscience is weak or seared, I'm reset out of a good conscience, you may have a hardness of heart. In other words, 
Um, does your conscience convict you after you have sinned? Or before you sin, does your conscience say, hey, 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 don't say that. Don't do that. What are you doing? Folks, if your conscience is only convicting you after you've sinned and not leading you before, you may have a hardness of heart. Do you find yourself envying others what they have? Could be family, could be occupation. Could be wealth, could be health. Do you find yourself in an envious position? Could be a hardening of your heart. Do you find yourself constantly parading yourself, puffed up, pushing yourself forward? Do you find yourself having to be the center of attention all the time, have all the accolades, all the praise? You may have hardness of heart. Do you find yourself being rude? Remember, we just read through the love portion of uh, 1 Corinthians. Do you find yourself being rude, constantly belittling, cutting others down, not valuing their opinion, not listening to people? You may have a hardness of heart. Are you self-involved? We read through James. It's actually devilish to be self-centered. You know the most self-centered being in the universe was Satan at the fall? The enemy of God said, I will be like the Most High. He wanted to take a position that was not his. He was completely self-involved. If you're completely self-involved, it's always all about you, and it needs to always all be about you, you may have a hardness of heart. If you do not enjoy a daily devotional time with God, you may have a hardness of heart. I mean, you do not enjoy spending time alone with God. If you receive little or no insight, inspiration, or comfort when reading the Scriptures, if you receive little insight, inspiration, or comfort when reading the Word of God, when reading the Bible, you may have a hardness of heart. If your prayers are empty, cold, or formulaic, in other words, you're just repeating the same phrase over and over again. You may have a hardness of heart. If your prayers go unanswered or are regularly answered with a no, you may have a hardness of heart. Remember what Jesus said. His desires become our desires, and therefore when we pray, we have the desires of our heart because our heart is soft and open, and being led and immersed by the presence of God. And so if your prayer life is empty, cold, or unanswered, or the answer is no, you may have a hardness of heart. If your faith is weak, you may have a hardness of heart. If you find that you have no joy, you have no discernible joy in your life, you may have a hardness of heart. If you don't enjoy the fellowship of the saints. And what I mean by that is gathering together with other believers in Jesus. If you don't enjoy coming out to church and being with your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you don't enjoy getting together with other Christians outside of church, if you don't enjoy that, you may have a hardness of heart. If you are not generous with your time, talent, and treasure, if you're selfish, that's an indicator of having a hardness of heart. This is your diagnostic. And I hope that you will go back and you will, you will read these bullet points. Read this list. Go back and read the Scriptures and ask those questions. Is my heart hard? Is my heart hard? Where's my heart getting hard? Where's my heart somewhat hard? Now, I'm not going to tell you how hard or soft your heart may be, but I'm, I'm going to tell you this. If you've gone through that list and you have three or four or five of those that you've answered positively to, yeah, I, I, when I pray, it's almost always a no. Nah, I really don't like going to church. I don't like being around other Christians. Other Christians drive me crazy. Um, I haven't really enjoyed the presence of God. I haven't enjoyed reading the Scriptures. I haven't had a a good devotional life, that's an indicator that your heart, your heart is either hard or is getting hard. And if we're going to practice the personal presence of God, 
we're going to need to work on softening our spiritual heart. And it's really easy to become callous. This world has become so jaded. Oh my goodness, we see so much bad. And we see it in other believers, and that causes us to be turned off. And instead of seeing the person of God, we begin to just look at other people. Whatever it is, it's hard in your heart. And this is my prayer for you. Will you ask yourself this question? Is my heart hard? Is my heart getting hard? Are there areas in my life that I need to work on to soften up? Go through the list that I just gave you. It's going to be online, so if I spoke too quickly, rewind and write it out and ask yourself those questions. Worship doesn't move me. My conscience doesn't make me aware of a wrong step. It only convicts me after I've taken it. I'm envious. I want what everybody else has. I'm constantly putting myself forward. Self-involved. When I read the Bible, I basically get nothing from it. No comfort, insight, or inspiration. Folks, go through that diagnostic. Ask yourself that question. Where is my heart at? So what do we do if our heart is hard. What do we do? Number one is this. We understand that it is God that has begun the process of softening your heart. You're actually watching this online today or you're in the sanctuary today, the few people that are here, because God is already working on softening your heart. Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So what do we do if we find that we're getting a hard heart? Well, the first thing is I want you to thank God for initiating the work of softening your heart. And secondly, I want you to prepare to do the work of cooperating with God in the process. And the very first thing that I'm going to ask you to do as we close is start with prayer. Next week, we're going to look at some more ways to soften our hearts, to cooperate with God. But right now, take the diagnostic. Ask those questions of yourself. And where you find a hardness, start to pray that God would open that heart up Break down those walls. Shred that hard shell to reveal that new and soft and living heart within. So start with prayer. Hey, all thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to know more, please go to our website, emmanuelhooksit.com, where you'll find helpful links and resources and where you can contact us directly. That web address again is emmanuelhooksit.com. Bless God. Get out there and be the blessing.